The Jeremy White Show. Our next guest, uh, very stoked to have him back on the show. Our first interview didn't go so well because of connection problems, but we're back. <laughs> we're back in business. Multi-platinum selling, Grammy award winning, and one of the most iconic names in metal. Currently on their Crush the World Tour and, of course, their latest record, The Sick, The Dying, and The Dead. Available now wherever you get your music. Please welcome to the show for the first time, the one, the only, Dave Mustaine from Megadeth. There we are. How you doing? That's awesome, man. You can tell you're in radio. Was- <laughs> you know, I, 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 for me, I'm all about the intro. I love the big intro, you know? Yeah, it was great. I love when David Lee Letterman always says, my next guest needs no introduction, and then he goes on to a whole spiel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was never a big late night TV uh, fan because by that time of night, we were well into our own kind of uh, show. Right. Yeah. I guess at that point you were coming off stage and I guess the party was just beginning, right? Well, even when we were in our apartments, we were coming off stage. (laughs) (laughs) True. Yeah. Was it, what was that like back in the day? Like, you know, finishing a show compared to these days, I'm sure there's a stark contrast. There is. There's a total difference. You know, when we, uh, it depends on which uh, time period you're talking about. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of different uh, activities that everybody would do, depending on who they were. And out of respect for them, um, I, I'll talk about myself only uh, <laughs> in this yeah. matter. Um, you know, when we would come off stage during the first lineup, uh, it was mostly alcohol and, and we didn't... Uh, you know, the hard stuff didn't come around towards until the end of their time with us. And the next uh, lineup, you know, we would party, but uh, it was a totally different thing. And uh, it was during kind of a plague that hit uh, California and Los Angeles. Um, and and then uh, the next lineup after that, it was it was definitely um, the uh, brownstone uh, stuff and and. Yeah. Um, just just all different kinds of substances because the behavior was always the same. We'd get off stage and we would be uh, completely uh, overwhelmed with adrenaline. And, and you get people that are adrenaline junkies and having a lot of people around them that are really excited about what they just did. That makes for a party all of its own. Right. And I guess at that point, you're kind of still chasing that high, right? Like you got that adrenaline come off stage. Like you're going to absolutely you know, do a couple of bumps and like try and keep going through the rest of the night. Like just keep that vibe going, I guess. Not anymore. That hasn't been part no, of No, I mean like back in the day. Like sure, this yeah, Well, not a bump. You know, that was for beginners. <laughs> we would do rails. And like a railroad. <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't want to talk about how much we did it it was uh the point of the whole partying was to uh reach the ultimate pinnacle which was being able to find somebody really attractive and and uh you know take them home take them your hotel room take them to your bus um find a dressing room somewhere and as we all got serious with our relationships and settled down um, most of us took, uh, you know, uh, that kind of lifestyle and put it on a shelf. And, and uh, you know, some people got married and divorced, and, and some people didn't get married because they just weren't ready to settle down. And and then, you know, me, myself, I got married, and I've been married over 30 years. Yeah. And I think when people do put that lifestyle on the shelf, it, it 
ultimately saves lives. I mean, like I, I went to rehab last year and I've been sober for quite some time now. And like, I got to say, like it completely saved my life. Like I was on a downward spiral. So it's nice to talk to people that are sober and hear their stories. And, you know, hear I love hearing about the crazy wild tales they have back in the day because it makes me think like, yeah, it's a good thing I don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. 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 People, they, they have to take it. It takes what it takes. You know, I always said that, you know, getting loaded was like having sex with a gorilla, you know, the rest of the saying, right. You're not done until the gorilla's done. Right. You know, and, and, uh, it, it, yeah, it takes what it takes. I saw you guys in Laval a couple of weeks ago on the Crush the World Tour. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, one of the best shows I've seen. Just from a, a sonic standpoint, the band just sounded so good. Your front of house mix was incredible. So just big props to your, your front of house guy. Hey, I, I was standing in front of house and he was doing adjustments through the entire show. He did not stop, you know, playing with the plugins and like adjusting and and you could hear it in the mix. You could you you felt and heard the kick, but you you heard the picking and you felt the bottom of the bass. Like everything was just fantastic so um yeah you got to keep that guy he's a fantastic talent and and i let him know it uh was just talking to him about the Budokan show as well as the fact we record everything every night so that we can study them it's much like football tapes on monday morning and we we really do that you know when the show's over we ask for the light director and uh front of house uh, sound man that you're talking about right now we asked them for tapes either either a videotape or an audio tape of some sort and it will either be the whole band or it may be an individual track of somebody there was one part that i was listening to on the bass and i thought damn it i i, I showed that to james wrong and uh so we went back in and we listened and he was playing it right and for some crazy reason, I was just hearing it wrong. So that was great to be able to listen to his track soloed up because <clears throat> we all want what's best for us. I especially want to make sure my playing's good because I kind of anchor things for everyone. Right. And it's nice to know that you have that love and care for your craft because there's a lot of bands out there that'll just go mail it in and they'll just play to the same tracks every night. Meanwhile, you guys are live and you're performing. You're musicians. Yeah. We do we we, we do uh, miss certain things, you know. Um, when when you have a, a certain guitar part, for example, and you play it on an electric and you're using an effect, so it sounds like an acoustic versus actually having an acoustic for the part. But you know, some songs that have acoustic in it, it would be difficult to do because if the acoustic comes back in the song after the initial appearance of it say for example there's a verse with acoustic and then the chorus is electric and then it goes back to acoustic again there's a good likelihood that i'm going to take the acoustic off after that first verse and and let her rip during the chorus and then what do i do you know put the yeah. acoustic back on or do i swing it behind my back and act like i'm in uh, one of those uh you know bands where they flip their guitars around you know or have the acoustic on the stand like doing the thing the reach around yeah we kiko does that because um you know it, he doesn't want to wear the acoustic and and i and i i get it um for me uh you know if i can't wear it uh, i'm i'm pretty much not gonna do it yeah. and um when 
we do songs like Use the Man. Um, we'll go into the break in the middle of the song and um, I'll choose to use an acoustic the whole time. And when the chorus comes in, we blast the crap out of the acoustic so it sounds like an electric instead of doing the opposite and making an electric try to sound like an acoustic. Yeah. And it's funny. I mean, I, I got to look at your rig before the show and I thought I was kind of I'm kind of surprised that you guys were running. <laughs> I know. Right. I, I, I stuck backstage. I saw it before and I shouldn't have. But I, I got a glimpse of it. Kill you now, man. <laughs> it was it was rather underwhelming. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> My rap. So, yeah, so you guys are running Neural DSP Quad Cortex, which blew yeah. my mind because it was just that and your guitars. And yeah. that was Basically. it. That's, I mean, gone are the days of the big of the big Bradshaw rigs, right? And everything. Like, you just need that little box and that's it. Well, the, the, let's, let's be honest about what the Neural is. It's quite an incredible piece of machinery and you know i stopped using bradshaw a long time ago for a, a reason and i went over to uh, rocktron and we were using rocktron and then we switched over to Furman. and uh, as we did that we started to narrow down all the extra peripheral gear uh, all of it was rack mounted but still it was a lot of extra stuff in the signal path but you don't really uh, need and, and you don't really want. Uh, so you try and get that sound out of the amp. Mm-hmm. Make sure that the guitar's got a good sound too. Because if the guitar sounds like a dog, you know, you're, all you're doing is polishing a turd. You're not, you're not going to um, really have sound that you're going to love hearing. I love my sound. It makes, it makes me so excited every night to go out there and play. Yeah. Uh, my favorite time every night uh, when we played this song is the breakdown riff in The Conjuring. That is the epitome of a heavy metal sound and a heavy metal riff. So, um, you know, I, I think if you took all the little uh, elements that's inside of the neural and you laid them out, um, I don't think it would be quite as underwhelming. But part of uh, why we did that uh, is is so that we can travel more and and we can travel uh, more economically so that we can go to countries that aren't as blessed as Canada. Right. For example, we're going to Estonia, a very small country. Not a lot of people live there in the first place. So it stands to reason the demograph and the percentile of the heavy metal fans there is going to be, even if it's 50% of the, the population, which is a farce, that's um, still going to be not a lot of people because you have to factor in on top of the fact if they're a fan, whether they go to live music or not. You know, so you've got situations where you're 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 playing places that are smaller, and and um, it's really important to get there. And having economy with your gear is really important. Yeah, all that truck space, freight you got to put on the plane. How much more is exp- how much more expensive has it gotten for you guys the tour? Oh, it's it's pretty expensive. It's about I think it's about forty five thousand dollars a day for us just to sit still. Wow. I think it might be 52, but that's just sitting still. That's not uh, doing a show. Show days are more expensive. That's gear sitting in trucks in a parking lot, bus, like everything. Yeah. Salaries, hotel rooms, insurance, 
uh, everything. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the buses, the, the bus drivers, the trucks, the truck drivers. Yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. It's amazing how far, I mean, like post-pandemic, how everything's just gotten more expensive. I saw the... Um I saw an interview with M Shadows from Avenged Sevenfold. He was talking about how just like their bus, their tour bus rentals were like costing them $2 million more like to go on the road and stuff. It's it's amazing how much stuff has just gone up. Yeah, I think that might be because uh, his band uh, takes out more buses than, um, for example, we take two. I'm sure that they probably take more than that. And I think because um, they're so successful, that um, there, there could be, I'm not saying this, but there, there could be um, certain people that, that would be more willing to uh, give them a, an incentive to use their company because of what great promotion it would be to have uh, those guys using a bus company. If I had a brand new bus and I wanted to get popular, you know, a band like uh, Avenged would be a great band for, you know, uh, promoting your company. Right. That makes sense. So you would think, you know, charging these guys 2 million bucks, man, they would either have to have a lot of buses or he's talking about a long time. Um, Buses are generally between five to $10,000 a week. Damn. Yeah. Because that costs uh, that includes fuel and the driver and his hotel. <clears throat> Sometimes you have to do double drives. Uh, yeah. in, in Europe, you have to do that. It's crazy to hear about the economics of it because, uh, I mean, everybody's talking about the price of concert tickets these days and like Megadeth goes on stage and it's you guys and you're, it's, it's a great, fantastic show, but people don't necessarily know what goes on behind the scenes and what they're really paying for. You know, it might be 200 bucks for a ticket, but if the band is paying, you know, like 10 grand a week just on buses, I mean, they, they got bills to pay too. Well, we never lay that trip on the fans. Of course not. There's other bands out there. I saw Kiss was putting like, a, they were doing like some uh, deal today online because, uh, I guess some of their shows weren't selling, but their tickets were like 500 bucks a pop. And like, I think fans are kind of rebelling against it now. That's a lot of money. Yeah, it is. Farewell yeah. Tour. And it's supposed to be the last farewell tour. Uh, talking about guitars and, you know, they got to sound good before going into the amp. You got this brand new Kramer signature guitar coming out. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, that's super exciting. You've had the Gibsons, the Epiphones, but now you're branching off onto the sister company of Gibson. You've got a Kramer now. Uh, talk a little bit about that. It's a beautiful guitar. Thank you. Um, it's been all uh, pretty, pretty magic for me. I, I had, um, for whatever reason, um, I left Jackson, went to ESP, wasn't happy there, went to Dean, was happy there until the person that had brought me there passed away because we had a common vision. And after he passed away, I realized that I probably should get a new start somewhere with somebody who understands me because I don't want to, um, I don't want to ruin anything for Dean and I don't want to uh, certainly ruin anything for myself. So um, I was going to leave and I heard about Gibson. We went there and the deal of me uh, being an endorser for Gibson alone was, was fantastic. But to be an ambassador for the company, which is a whole nother level 
and to represent not only Gibson, but Epiphone and Kramer, to have the, um, the classic shape with the round legs on the bottom, and then to have the modern shape with the pointed legs on the bottom. It's uh, the best of both worlds with these shapes, and they've all three have my hand measurements for the neck. So it's exactly the same every guitar. So you pick up a Gibson and you play it and you're going, damn, this is a mighty guitar. And then you pick up a Kramer and, and uh, you're thinking it sounds exactly the same. Of course, there is the history. Gibson is a, a higher value instrument to some people thus the price point. Kramer is a guitar that is about $1,600, uh, whereas the Gibsons are a little bit more. Epiphone's right in the middle there. And they, like I said, they all feel the same. So they're all using my guitar pickups too, the Dave Mustaine uh, thrash factors or the live wires, depending on how you want your guitar configured, if you want an active or a passive guitar pickup. And with Gibson, we started off with passives and it was, it was just a love affair from the very beginning. And then going through the other lines with Epiphone and Kramer, it, it wasn't really that difficult to make these lines all of a sudden have serious metal credibility. Because somebody said to me when I first went to Gibson, and they said, Gibson isn't a metal guitar company. I said, it is now. <laughs> yes. That's it. Yep. You, you make it metal, right? You, you got to make it. I got to um, do my job. Talking about that, I mean, talk about the design of the guitar. I mean, obviously, it's a classic V-shape. You got the rounded edges or the pointed edge. You got your signature pickups in there. Um, I notice it's it's not a floating bridge. You don't got a Floyd Rose or nothing. It's it's a stop tail piece. Talk a little bit. Were, you were never like a big whammy bar guy though, right? No, I was not. I used it on on a couple songs. I used it on When. I used it on Wake Up Dead, and that's about it. I I don't really know any other parts off the top of my head that I remember using a whang bar. And for me, my belief is that whatever you do on the guitar with the wang bar, you should be able to emulate with your fingers. Um, somebody that, uh, for example, was a, a master with the wang bar who we recently lost was Jeff Beck. And Jeff was a guy that I liked to uh, listen to his technique with the wang bar um, <clears throat> more so than anyone else, because most other people besides David Gilmore did not really know how to use a trem bar. Um, you know, do, do you soften the chords like Chris Isaac did in the beginning of Wicked Ways uh, or whatever the name of that song is? Um, that's how I think it should be used. Like Dick Dale and the Surfcasters, you know, some of those chords. Right. That kind of swami kind of thing that, you know, those early 60s surf bands would get that kind of weird flying carpet kind of sound that they we're trying to get along with, you know, being on the beach. Right. All that spring reverb on there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, if I, uh, the uh, a vibrato in the amplifier. Yep. Love that. Is that one of your favorite guitar tones? Do you like that sound? 
Uh, which guitar tone is that? We're talking about a lot of different sounds. I guess, I guess like, you know, like a Fender Twin with that spring reverb, like, do you dig that kind of, like, clean sound, or is it just, like, straightforward super gain for you? I, you know, uh, I if you're talking about what I prefer to play, my, my main go-to sound is a very chunky uh, new wave of British heavy metal meets the British uh, uh, invasion mm-hmm. uh, kind of sound. Uh, you know, the American rock, People didn't have that kind of sound, uh, although we um, were responsible for, I believe, rock and roll starting with um, Robert Johnson and and a lot of the people that started playing guitar, playing blues, and then, then electrified it, like B.B. King and Albert King and and uh, all these other um, men of color, and um, and then they got discovered by the English and really started to become popular over there. And you've got these bands that everyone's thinking, oh my God, they're the greatest thing in the world. And then they're saying like, yes, but we ripped us off from you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. They were all big fans of the black blues guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's something to be said about these players. They were just magic. Yeah. I I love, I love R and B and, and urban music. My sister's, um, they were considerably older than me. Uh, the youngest one is three years older than me. And then the next two are 15 and 18 years older than me. So I was brought up on their music, which they love to listen to Motown. Diana yeah. Ross, the Supremes, Marvin Gaye, Al Green, uh, Sam and Dave, uh, the Commodores, Earth, Wind and Fire. God, so many bands. <laughs> and what I learned was what I heard uh, our, our, uh, co-producer for Rust in Peace went to a party <clears throat> for Ray Parker Jr. who had that Ghostbusters song, right? And uh, some will say that that was Huey Lewis's song. <laughs> yeah. Because it sounds pretty close to it, but uh, I know that uh, my guy, Macasia, had gone to this party and Quincy Jones was there and, and he said, the secret to a hit song is beat melody and 10 simple words. And I thought, wow, you know what? That's, that's really good, good word from a very successful, uh, brilliant mind. And when you think about Motown music, the frequency map that they use, the drum cuts off specifically before the bass comes in and the bass doesn't overlap the guitar. It's really, really thought out the way that they make their records. And uh, and I don't mean they like black people, they meaning Motown. Yeah. And um, I think what that does is it leaves you a giant... uh, section of the frequency map where you can sing in mm-hmm. you can have people that have falsetto you can have people that are baritones and you can have loads of harmony stuff and and um you know i i was told that the songwriters at motown every thursday i think it was they would come together and show what they'd written for the week and if the songs were winners they'd record them over the weekend and then they'd start all over again on monday that's incredible yeah, I'm not sure about that story, so please don't uh, don't well, get it. It sounds like it could be true. Like I would absolutely believe that. That's fact. Yeah. Well, great songwriters write songs. Mm-hmm. Do you consider yourself a great songwriter, Dave? If you put it that way, that's kind of 
I, I feel like I'm going to sound arrogant if I say that. I think I'm a lucky songwriter is what I feel. I feel I've gotten really blessed with um, some of the crazy things that go through my head. And, and playing guitar for me, it was kind of like a challenge to uh, see who was, who was going to win, me or the guitar string. You know, and and I I am self-taught, as I believe you probably know, and I haven't really given a lot of time to my craft. I just know what I know, and I know what I'm doing. I just don't know what it is <laughs> that I'm doing. Right. And I think that's great because uh, I've been able to continue to make uh, music that people like, and I, I I don't know the formula, so I can't fuck it up. Right. I mean, you're one of the guys that invented that formula, so how could you? It's your <laughs> it's your secret soup. There you go. <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't agree with that, but yeah, that's funny. Uh, talking about the new Kramer signature guitar, it's available now for pre-order. You can order from everywhere, pretty much. I was looking online, and Long and McQuaid in Canada's got them pre-ordering for about eighteen forty nine Canadian, which is a really great price. You're getting an incredible guitar, even if you know you don't have a ton of money. You're going to get a really damn good metal guitar. Uh, talking about the Kramer brand, uh, you've got your signature Kramer, and I believe it's the first time that the brand has ever taken the Kramer logo and used the artist's font. So even on the headstock, you've got the Megadeth font that says Kramer, which is a nice little uh, little detail in there. Uh, but but talk, talking about Kramer, I mean, Eddie Van Halen was one of the originators playing the Kramer brand back in the early 80s. Um, right. Did you ever get the chance to hang out with Edward back in the day? And uh, talk a little bit about Edward back, you know, like coming up. Were you a fan at all? Uh, you asked several questions there, so let me try and see if I can answer all of them. Uh, <laughs> was, uh, did I hang out with Eddie? No. Uh, did I know him? No. Did I know of him? Yes, of course. And, uh, did he influence my playing? Probably, uh, unbeknownst to myself, there are a couple little tricks that we do. Um, but those tricks were invented by, uh, a lot of people a long time ago um, that we do. I think Eddie would have been one of the first people to tell you that he didn't invent um, playing overhand on the guitar. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know where he picked up the tapping, but, uh, um, you know, it's just like with me when people say I'm the godfather of metal, I, I, I get shy. I, I, it's going to sound lame, but I, I almost feel embarrassed because, um, you know, while I was a big part of it and I was there, there were other people there. And uh, I'd really love to give them credit too. you know, the guys in, in, in Metallica and me were not the only ones uh, in the beginning. There were guys in bands like Laws Rocket, which is an unknown band and they I don't think mean anything anymore. Um, Hyrax, which was a band, I think they're still trying, but it was a band that never, um, got the break that they needed. Um, uh, of course, Exodus, great band, produced a great guitar player from Metallica, but Exodus never got that giant door opening for them. They had a, a, another great guitar player with Gary Holt that went on to play with Slayer. And uh, personally, for me, I think Gary's the sound of Exodus. Um, and then you got other bands like Testament, Overkill. My God, there's so many bands that that uh, are part of the scene. They just came a little bit after me. So 
I, I sometimes feel like we've got to remember all these other guys, you know, where, wherever their position was in the scheme of things, however much they had to do with it. I think it's important that we uh, just know the history. You know, I love being um, uh, uh, respected by our, our community because I respect our community and, and I like keeping it real. So I want to make sure that people know that uh, I'm never going to accept uh, false um, compliments. I, I'm going to make sure people know if, if I don't deserve it, that, you know, I don't want it. Mm-hmm. Given credit where credit's due, you got to respect that. I mean, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of great guys in the beginning, J-Dub. Yeah, no, absolutely. And a lot of them are still killing it at the top of their game, you know? Yeah, I just wish they would have gotten the chance. You know, I, I, I got really fortunate and got a bunch of breaks that, that um, you know, like my sister used to always say, I would fall upwards. And uh, I'm grateful for that. And, and that's why we take out bands that nobody knows sometimes because we're just trying to give other bands a break. Mm-hmm. You know, when we went out this time up in um, your beautiful country, we took out bullet for my valentine which everybody knows and um but have they been to a show and uh the opening band oni mm-hmm. nobody really knew who they were it's a band that was managed by my last management company who i just fired and one would think i would say fuck you to these guys because they were with the company i just fired but right. yeah i didn't do that I figured, you know what, guys, we're going to give you your break and and we're going to keep our word. We're going to take care of you out here no matter what. <laughs> and we're going to do the right thing because we want you to remember this. And when you're in our position, we want you to do the same thing. Pay for it forward. The, for the younger bands. Yes, absolutely. This ain't about me. It's about helping the people that are coming. Mm. It's about the community in general, I guess. Yeah. It's funny you talk about that. I mean, you know, metal isn't necessarily massive in the mainstream these days and rock in general. I mean, what do you think the genre can do to get a little bit more out there? Just stay pure. We don't, you know, one of the things that happened to metal back in 1992 was it became popular. Mm -hmm. And then people started making money off of it and it changed because the music business used to be one word, right? Mm -hmm. And it became two words. And we were the music and they were the business. Right. And then the music business started to take over mm-hmm. and the business people became the people who ran the music business, not the artists. You know, we were no longer in control, no matter who we were. I yeah. mean, people that are superstars, you know, um, there's one there's one level higher than a superstar. That's a megastar. Right, go star, superstar, megastar, Madonna, Michael Jackson, uh, people like that, megastars, Carrie Underwood, uh, Luke Bryant, megastars. Right. Yeah. So, so there, there's still room for people to grow. You know, if you're a star, you can work up to being a superstar. But you know, you you don't find bands that have superstars in them very much. And, and honestly, think about where, where you're at. You're in Montreal, right? Yeah. 
Um, how many local bands that are from Montreal uh, that are metal bands? Do you know? I mean, there's a handful. I mean, I can think of, I mean, hey, look at Sword. Oh, I love that band. You know, Rick Hughes. I mean, he lives right down the road from me. And I mean, you know. Playing? They're still doing a couple of, they did a show not too long ago. And I think they used to do like a couple of gigs here and there. But, you know, once again, they're not massive. But look at the influence they had on the community. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't, let's not talk about them because I don't want to say anything disrespectful about them because I love them. But uh, <laughs> let, let's say, pick another band. Or vo um, Voivod, another metal band from around here. Yeah, I don't know them. Okay, so anyways, yeah. you got a band that's got four people in it playing and, and they're all guys that play music. It doesn't mean they're musicians, right? Yeah. And you make a couple changes and all of a sudden you got four musicians in your band and you start to excel and you become a star. Mm -hmm. And you're happy with that and you realize the other guys in your band are just musicians and they're not stars. And if you want to really make it, you got to really have the talent. So if you're dealing with your friends and they're in the band, it's going to be really hard to say, I need to let you go. Mm -hmm. Because you're going to lose both the player in your band and the friendship. Because when you hire friends, you just got to know at some point you're going to lose them. You're going to have to fire them. It's even worse when you hire your family because yeah. you can't fire your family. You can fire them and watch your family fall apart. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you're lucky and you've got four stars in the band and all of a sudden the singer starts to be discovered and people go, this guy's a superstar, like, uh, Maroon 5, right? Adam Levine. I mean, if he went on the, if he didn't go on the voice, I mean, would Maroon 5 have taken off the way they did at that point? You know? I don't yeah. know. And some would say that the other guys in the band are not stars. Yeah. Right? But... I mean you got Valentine and you got the other guy. Was it Mike, Mike Carmichael? <laughs> other than that, I don't know anybody else. Yeah, neither do I. So no. it stands to reason that if you did the math, there would be uh, four musicians and, and a star. Mm -hmm. Or in Adam's case, a superstar. Or in the case of him now being a megastar, mm -hmm. he, he transcended the uh, journey which is almost straight fucking up and down uh, a glass mountain trying to get to that level. And he's a megastar. So those are the guys in the music business that you think would be able to go in and say, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. And usually they are able to get it. Mm -hmm. But when things don't go their way, there's people at the labels whose job is to be the, the, the asshole. Yeah. And I've found more often than not lately, there are people who are uh, learned in the law so that they can um, get away with stuff. I had, uh, when I was with ESP, the uh, m magazine called Musician's Friend came out and it had a, picture of my double neck guitar on the cover and I looked at that and I went son of a bitch they made a double neck and they didn't tell me so I called up the president and I said Matt you uh you made a double neck and you didn't tell me I said but that's not in my contract and I, I said my contract says you can't make double necks without telling me and he goes 
it doesn't say that I can't either. Oh, and come I, on. And um, so uh, I said, it doesn't say that he can. He says it doesn't say that he can't. And, I, and that's why I was with DSP for only two years. Mm -hmm. I didn't say anything negative about him. I never uh, badmouthed the company. I just knew that that's not the way I do business. And, and those are not the ways that I look at relationships, you know. Um, so what did it cost them? I don't know. What did it cost me? Two years of my life and some, uh, I, I, what did I get out of it? Some really good lessons. And uh, it's a great guitar company. Nothing being taken away from the guitar manufacturers. <laughs> it's just sometimes you're in a situation where you're dealing with people who are running a company or, you know, you've got rules or, or bylaws, especially when you're in the union. It's the corporation. Corporation always ruins it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is so much more shit than people expect to deal with in a band. You know, you think you're just going to go to a band and like the beginning of the interview, can't wait to get off stage and have a cold one. Uh-uh. It ain't like that anymore. No. You got your A&R guy breathing down your back like, no, no, that's not that's not going to trend on TikTok. You need, you need to work on that a little better. That, that could be catchier. There's a lot of things like that. Talking about that, I mean, you've worked with some great producers over the years, but like, were you ever pressured to maybe work with like a Mutt Lang or a Bob Rock? And like, would you have let them make your sound be a little bit more, you know, glittery and glossy for the radio? Like, some people would argue that that happened with Max Norman. Hmm. And I, I thought Max was great because he did Ozzy's stuff. When Ozzy first went solo, uh, Tire of a Madman and Blizzard of Oz, Max Norman had done. And, and Max mixed Rest in Peace, which was a great, uh, a great mix and when we did countdown countdown was our biggest record ever so stands to reason i'm gonna think this guy is our best guy mm -hmm. so we did countdown and the next record we did was euthanasia and the fans started to get bummed mm. and um why was that well it was because the song slowed down and they all started taking on radio track uh, structure mm -hmm. you know, megadeth didn't have songs that were based on verse chorus solo this kind of stuff it was beginning of the song talk about a bunch of shit do a bunch of jamming shredding solos do like a gang yelling at the end and then balls out to the end of the song yeah it's kind of like what we would do and then then you start thinking verse chorus verse chorus solo chorus out first chorus, first chorus, solo chorus out, you know, it's, it's uh, sucking the life out of our creativity. And, and that's why we made some management changes, you know, making a management change too is, it's just like anything in the music business, you know, when you make a change for most people on the outside, it doesn't look like anything happened, but in reality, because of how tenticular a person is in the music business, you know, a manager has his fingers in everything. So when you let a person like that go, especially if they're a bad one, it's like turning an aircraft carrier around, right. you know, you know, it's turning. It just don't look like it. Right. It's almost like getting out of a toxic relationship where your partner is just, you know, it's borderline abusive and wants to control everything you do. Like, I, I feel like it must be invigorating to get that person out of your life and take yeah. back control. Yeah, yeah. Boy, I wouldn't even know what to do in a situation like that anymore because, you know, I've learned my lesson so many times over the years with 
just meeting people and taking the time to actually invest in a relationship instead of meeting somebody and kind of superficially saying, okay, you're in the club. And then finding out of somebody that I don't generally mix with, mm-hmm. you know, what happens then? You've got to say, uh, hit the road, Jack. And, and that's never uh, welcome news. No. It's like a breakup at the end of the day. It's like both parties kind of lose, right? <laughs> Yes, and that's uh, why it's so many songs are about relationships. You know, uh, uh, just thinking about how many love songs we have, and we don't have very many at all. Love to Death is, it, you know, is a love song, but it's pretty, f- pretty freaking far from a love song, you know. But it is a love song. Boy loves girl. Boy can't have girl. Yeah, and look, you got justice now. You don't need anybody else. You're you're in good hands. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, we've got a great management company right now. Uh, talking about, I mean, you're you're in Nashville these days. Electra, obviously, rising country star. Different musical paths from you, but like, could we possibly see maybe a Megadeth and Electra, you know, country metal crossover at some point? Um, Electra's not really uh, <clears throat> concerned about her music career because she's she's got a gift, so she could she could pick up a microphone and and sing her way into a record contract anytime that she wants to. She's a sommelier. And she's uh, studying right now to be an advanced sommelier. And there are very few women uh, sommelier at at that level in the world. And um, so she and her mom are uh, running House of Mustaine uh, wine. And uh, they're doing a great job with it. They just bought a farm out in Italy. And um, we should be having some of that wine available and, and, uh, ready to ship up to um, friends like yourself up, up uh, in North America. I don't know for sure uh, what the deal is with shipping wine into Canada, but you know, I'm, I'm sure uh, management could talk to you after this interview and let yeah. you know, and you could let us know what your preference is. My, I like Syrah myself, Shiraz. Mm. And I think that the, it's a better tasting uh, wine for me. And, and that's, that was my job with the company. We first did this for the Symphony of uh, 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 the San Diego Symphony. Somebody had been talking crap about metal guitar players. And I said, the metal guitar players today, you'd be surprised how good they really are. They're like the violinists of the past, like Paganini and, and uh, people like that. Yeah. Uh, these really remarkable guitar players and and somebody said man that's crap you couldn't do that stuff and i went oh you cheerily you jest and um so uh i contacted the san diego symphony and and we hooked up a gig and i learned some vivaldi and some wagner and some bach <coughs> and we uh we did that and we needed something to break the ice so we thought let's get some beer and then we thought man beer's not gonna sit well with the people who you gonna send them a case of uni brew to the symphony <laughs> no 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 we we figured that the people that had subscriptions to the uh symphony that were the regular subscription holders for the year uh wouldn't appreciate beer but they would probably like to have some wine so uh we ran the risk of our fans being upset about having wine and the people that were not uh fans yet uh being happy uh versus the alternative and and our fans loved the wine Mm. and uh the symphony fans loved the wine. We sold out everything we had in 24 hours. Damn. Yeah. 
I mean, and that, that started our, our uh, venture into the wine business. Yeah. I mean, look, metal fans aren't necessarily just kids anymore. I mean, they're adults with uh, with careers and they're mature people. Like, they like to sit on a under balcony, have a glass of red after a long week. Like, yeah. I don't see why it wouldn't work. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of things that we have planned for um, our fans and, and for, for uh, wine connoisseurs in general. This, uh, you know, House of Mustaine uh, doesn't uh, necessarily say Megadeth. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm part of it, but it doesn't it doesn't rely on the Megadeth name because the quality of the grape that we pick and the way that we produce the wine is uh, a very high level. Our champagne that we make is hand turned. It's a very old technique where you go and you turn the bottle by hand every day for I think it's for a year, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, you have uh, 5,000 bottles like that and you've got to go turn them every day. Imagine your arms are going to look like fucking Popeye. Oh, sorry for saying the F word. No, you're good. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, uh, but, you know, that's we try and do things as, as quality as we can and we didn't want to make it like uh, the Megadeth beer because Megadeth beer's got a coolness all of itself. Yeah. And, and right uh, down the road here in Quebec. Yeah, actually, it's not made there anymore because our contract, oh. our contract has come to a close and we started with those guys and they were mm. gracious enough to help us get into the beer business. And, and now I think we're going to be um, returning back home. Um, they were they were more than fair and gave us an incredible deal. And it's just not it's just not uh, beneficial for them. Uh, because you know it's a business, and and they gave us such a great deal, they're hardly making anything. So um, I, I uh, was very grateful for our time there, and and wish them the absolute best. And they have great beer. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you got your beer, you got your wine, and you got your brand new Kramer guitar. I mean, as a fan, I mean, what what more could I ask for? You're still making great music. You got shows going on. I mean, that's the end of Megadeth is nowhere near, and I love it. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. I'm sure that that's going to come at some point, but you know, I, I don't, I don't see anything right now. Um, right. I, I feel, I feel good about my health, and and uh, you know, the only thing that would be weird is if I ever got in a situation where I have to stop singing, mm-hmm. and that I think, uh, even if I could play, if I couldn't sing, I think because of Megadeth being, you know built on my voice. I, I don't think that I would carry on because I, I just think if I didn't do that, that I would be cheating the fans. Um, not that I'm a great singer, but um, I just, you know, I have a lot of, lot of thinking to do as we um, are, are watching the sunrise on our career right now, because it should, should be setting. It's setting on a lot of my peers career if it isn't already set. Yeah, but it seems like the sun is still rising in the land of all things mega. Well, I love it. Uh, this is absolutely awesome to chat with you. You've said it all. Uh, anything else you want to get out there for the fans? Like just, uh, you know, in closing about the guitar, like what do you, if I'm holding it, what do you want me to feel when I, when I hold on to this new Kramer guitar? Like you have the biggest Johnson in the world. <laughs> that should be on the every poster. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, uh, well, I think you should feel uh, electrified, like you're a star, like you're a superstar. Mm. Fuck that, like you're a megastar. There you go, that's what I wanted. <laughs>
an all-new episode of The Jeremy White Show. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews and episodes on demand now. Subscribe so you don't miss any of it. 